Hello, everyone. I am That Weems Guy back for another episode. And joining me today is Miss Annette Evans. Hello, Annette. Hi, everybody. And uh, before we get started, I have to tell my favorite Annette Evans story. Uh, Annette and I actually met in person for the first time at a class in Paducah, Kentucky. So if you get a chance to go to Paducah and take a class from OpSpec training, go. And gosh, I forget the name of the little barbecue joint that had the great ham sandwiches there. I don't know, but it was fantastic. It was a little cinder block building uh, just right off the side of the highway. And like their their atmosphere was that there was no atmosphere. They had these great sandwiches. Um but there was a store nearby called the Rural King, R-U-R-A-L, Rural King. And me being a Georgia boy from the country, I just could not resist going into the such a name store. And so Annette and I would go over into the store and walk around, and it has every piece of Carhartt clothing known to man. And I'm like, this is the greatest place ever. And if we continue to walk through the store, uh, all of a sudden we stumble upon the gun counter. And so we walk over and we're looking at the guns and stuff. And I was trying to keep a straight face because I was trying to do that. So I was going to ask the gun guy you know, at the counter, like, hey, uh, what do you recommend for the little lady? And just step back and watch the fireworks explode. And I knew that I would not be able to keep a straight face when I did it. So I didn't do it. Uh, but that's my favorite in that story. So, that was a really, really fun weekend. We got a lot of shooting done. That was a good weekend. Um, so Annette, tell everyone about yourself. Well, I have been around the firearms and self-defense community for about 15 years now, which is very strange to me. Um, most people know me or started knowing me when I was competing quite a bit. I competed in IDPA, USPSA, and 3-Gun, and a few other sports, um, shot for some large manufacturers and all of that. And then I... Um, as happens to many people, I took a Craig Douglas class and my entire life changed and entered the combatives world, started doing a lot more of the self-defense stuff. You know, like almost like everybody who gets into guns in the beginning, I started in self-defense and then I sort of like wandered off and then I went hardcore back in. Um, been doing that for many years now. I tried and didn't quite succeed in opening a facility to train self-defense and shooting and things like that. And these days I run a website called On Her Own, where I talk about all of the different things that I've learned in this journey of firearms and self-defense and self-care really. You know, all of the things that go into how do we protect ourselves and protect our lives. Um, in some ways I call it my doctoral dissertation. All right. Now, you mentioned you shot competitively. If I remember correctly, you had a, and maybe I don't remember the terms correctly because I don't do USPSA, regional or sectional championship? Yeah, I am a former Area 8 ladies production champion. And okay. I also uh, took the East Coast Steel Challenge Centerfire Ladies Championship once too. Oh, cool. And do you still shoot competitively? I've taken a couple of years off with life and the pandemic and everything else. I am really, really hoping to get back on the range this year. All right. And I know you mentioned the Craig Douglas class. Uh, where has your self-defense firearms training taken you? And you can throw in any martial arts stuff. Um, so I have trained with almost the entire Shiftworks Collective at, at this point. Um, I'm still working on Chris Fry. He's been avoiding me. And um, I... I've taken all I've taken several of the classes many times in a couple of weeks here I'm going to be assisting Cecil Birch with his immediate action jiu-jitsu curriculum I am also um, 
in Brazil, I study Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now. So I've been training for about three and a half years. I am a three-strike blue belt under Rob Shire at Precision Jiu-Jitsu in King of Prussia. Uh-huh. And are you actively teaching still? Not as much. Mostly, mostly these days I'm writing a whole mm-hmm. lot. I think that I, I'm reaching, I'm trying to reach more people that way. This is my cat, Tuna. <laughs> She, she wanted to be introduced, apparently. Uh-huh. Um, I, I've been doing a lot more writing these days. I've been looking at developing a class or two, but I'm really interested more now in some of that material. All right. You were teaching under the OpSpec better at one time, right? I, I've assisted them a few times. Okay. So, And I've taught here and there. And I also, I had actually debuted my own class at one point and just hadn't really taken it on the road. Yeah, I've heard very good things about your uh, introductory class. Thank you. Uh, I, may, I may not be using the correct terminology, uh, but several of our, of our friend circle spoke very highly of, if you have a new shooter that you want to get started out right, Annette's class is a great, great class to go to that. I, I do my very best. I'll, I'll tell you off air who the people were that, that said that, so that you can, <laughs> you can deal with them appropriately. Uh, so was Craig's class where you began to see the need for a multi, multidisciplinary approach? I think that was kind of the start of the gun isn't going to solve the problem, right? So when we think about self-defense, a lot of us from the gun world focus a lot on gun fighting. And by gun fighting, I mean, draw the first shot, shoot the bad guy until he stops. And things happen after that. I I bet Masada, you've talked about that on his episode. Um, And Craig's class, and I started with Ewo, his edge weapon overview. So it was sort of both an introduction to the entangled fight, you know, the fight goes out hands-on and also using other tools within the fight. And then that opened my eyes quite a bit to, well, you know, what if I can't get the gun out? That's going to be a problem, you know, and I think that there's quite a few fights with women, especially where that's going to go hands-on, you know, people like to get grabby with women especially because we're we're smaller you know we're smaller we're perceived as weaker so they're going to kind of try to grab you and you know once that guy has my arm or they're in that kind of reach drawing my gun um means i'm drawing our gun right as craig would put it so i took that class and went well this isn't going to work you know i'm not gonna i can barely get a knife out you know i'm not gonna get a gun out i'm certainly not gonna get a good shot off with it So I have to learn all these other things if I want to use my gun in a fight. And I went down the BJJ rabbit hole. In fact, I literally just got home from class. Um, And then as I'm thinking about that, and especially through like Dr. William April's work, you know, looking at the psychology first of the attacker and the attack, and then I'm looking at the victim. You know, the person who's being targeted and what goes into defending themselves. And it's not just, well, I'm ready to fight for my life. Well, what goes into being ready to fight for your life? Right? Like you have to, you have to value yourself enough to fight. Otherwise, you're not going to. I could teach you all the skills in the world, but if you're not willing to pit them against another human being because you think you have value, and because you think you deserve to live more than he does or she does, then all the skills aren't going to help you. Right. So it's what was Williams? Example. What was Williams' quote of your your understanding and consent are not required? 
Yeah, your understanding and consent are not required. And I can't remember the exact words right now right. either. Um, but we, we don't have to know why the bad guys are going to bad guy, right? right. We, we just need to know that they are and that we have to fight them. So we don't have to understand them, but I would posit that we have to understand ourselves. Yeah, and I think you can extend William's quote to what you were just talking about, too, is one of the common retorts to people who don't want to do ground fighting class or a weapon retention classes, well, I would just never let anybody get that close to me, or I would just never let anybody take me to the ground. Well, you may not have a vote. You don't have a vote. I, I weigh well, probably about 40 to 60 pounds less than most of the people I train jujitsu with. Do, do you think I have a, I, I'm, I can do pretty good staying up. Mm-hmm. I could do pretty good staying on top, but do I always have a choice if they literally just want to sit up and if I'm on top and they just want to sit up and put me underneath? Not always. And size at a certain point becomes a tactic. Oh yeah. I, I used to joke about the guys who would uh, just fat on me in class. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, what, what, what kind of techniques were they using? They laid on me. Mm-hmm. They laid on me. All 200 pounds of them laid on me. Yeah. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? Yeah. And that's really th- that, that you have those moments and anybody who's taken any of the Shivworks classes is familiar with this moment when you've got a dude or a lady on top of you suffocating you, or it feels like you're being suffocated. You're like, well, what do I have now? Right. And a reason to take such classes so that you learn not to panic when that happens mm-hmm. is to keep thinking and how to deal with the situation. And Go ahead. I think that, you know, most of us, probably all of us have that moment of panic in class, but because we panic in class, because we panic in training, we panic less the next time we see it. And we can yeah. hope that it's in training, but if it's for real, we've already been under there. We've already been uncomfortable and went, well, this really sucked. Now what? You know, our mind's not going to go where we haven't prepared it to go. Exactly. And, I know John Hearns talked about that a lot. And that's the, probably the biggest uh, benefit of training is getting your mind wide right and preparing your mind to go where you very well may have to go. Yeah. I, I think that one of the things that good training can do is put you into situations that may feel unsafe to you. And this is especially true for anybody who's a trauma survivor is it it gives you a safe environment to go, well, what is going to happen if, you know, some dude crawls on top of me and starts hitting me in the face. All right. And so along with that, I, I'm going to grab a topic off of your on your own webpage and, and insert it here. And I believe the, the name of the article was uh, how to uh, politely give and receive unsolicited self-defense advice. Do I have the title right? How, how to give and receive unsolicited self-defense advice. Yeah. All right. From a couple of well, weeks ago. All right. Well, explain that to us. I think in the self-defense world, especially, but you know, in all areas, there there are some of us who care very much about wanting other people to be safe, and we want to give them all of the things that they need in order to be safe. And the person who's receiving that advice isn't always ready to hear it for all sorts of reasons, whether because 
you know, they're already well on that road or they're working on other aspects of their life or whatever else. So how do you gently tell somebody else, hey, this is something that can help you remain safe. I care about you. This is why I'm telling you. And on the uh, and understand that the person that you're telling isn't rejecting your advice because they're angry at you or they don't want it or anything else. But there, there can be all sorts of reasons. You know, maybe they don't want to tell you that they're terrified of going to a class because they're going to have to shoot in front of other people or they don't want to fight other people. They've never been punched before. They don't really want to learn what that's like. And they, there's, there's things they need to get over in their own heads before they go. Or maybe there's some other barrier in place. You know, they don't have the money to go. They don't have the time to go. And they don't want to tell you. And you may not be in a position to hear that for whatever reason. They may not want to tell you. Or maybe they go, I know I need to do that. I know I need to take that class. I know I need that training. But first, I need to learn. I, I need to learn and understand things like I'm important enough to put myself first. Or I need to work on things like drawing boundaries. And the first one I'm going to draw is you can't tell me to go to class. So I, I really appreciate when people say, hey, I want to I want to help this person that I like and I care about be safer and I want to offer them all this advice and I want to buy them gear and all this other stuff. But um, they might not, it might not be the right time and place for that. And then on the receiving end of that, you know, remembering that people are being well-meaning, I think is really important. But at the same time, what's the first boundary, right? In this kind of situation, I think it's very, very problematic when we tell people, hey, you should learn self-defense. And the way we're going to make you learn self-defense is by breaking through your boundaries when you say, no, you don't want to learn something. Mm -hmm. What did we just teach them? Your boundaries only matter when, when, when we say they matter. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think that's so good either. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, from the firearms training perspective, because I do that way more than the, the martial arts side of it, you know, gun guys want to start with the gun as the answer. And that just may not fit a person's needs or their lifestyle. And as Claude Warner would say, get a real job. <laughs> because it just... I, my job requires me to carry a firearm and and if i get caught carrying off duty i'm not going to be in trouble All right. but you know someone else may be in a professional setting to where if it gets learned that they were carrying a gun at work they're fired and they never get to work in their field again or may or may have a very drastic uh road back to anything close to what they had and or it may be illegal for them to carry Mm-hmm. where they were they live in new jersey yeah well i live in an in a area with two universities mm-hmm. and it's illegal and still in some capacities to carry on college grounds in georgia or a school teacher can't well unless the school board gives them permission uh can't carry and or may not carry legally in the schools all right so if we're telling those people that your self-defense question starts and ends with a firearm well then we're just completely shutting them out and there's so much else that, you know, what if we could teach them muck? Mm-hmm. What if we could teach them straight up boundary drawing? What if we could teach them pepper spray? What if we could teach them how to use a flashlight? Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Or if they are ready for lethal tools, what if the answer is a knife for them instead of a gun for, you know, whatever reason? I, I think right. knife fights really suck. Um, I mm -hmm. would probably not recommend that over a gunfight if you can avoid it. But right. probably the, one of the biggest things I've learned in EWO and ECQC and BJJ and everything else is I'm going to get a knife out before I can get a gun out. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a tool, you know, flashlight. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest things that I recommend to people who work in such environments because a flashlight is a flashlight is always a flashlight. Now, you may get one of the ones that's got a steel bezel and scrapes DNA off of it when it does it, but it's still, when you hold it up, it's a flashlight. And, and that's one of the big things I would recommend people to carry. And you're walking to your car at night. You can illuminate your area. You can say, hey, I see you over there. It's got so many uses that you could, all, but you can also use it as an impact weapon. Yep. And even if you don't ever use it as an impact weapon, aren't prepared to use it as an impact weapon, A, just the light can be enough, the ICU, and mm -hmm. B, you could go the route of flashlight that has enough lumens and candlelight to hit as if you smack somebody in the face. Yeah, I got to tell you, when you light up a parking lot to daylight bright in the middle of the night, <laughs> it, it gets people's attention and they're like yeah i'm not going over there because if he's got that there's gonna there's very likely something else and, and they <laughs> hate it even more when you do it right in their eyes right and it has a disorienting effect um now i understand your opinion of and experience with oc or pepper spray is vastly different than mine um but I respect your opinion. I expect Chuck Haggard's opinion and, and you know, several other of our, of our circle. Uh, could you speak to OC or pepper spray for a second? So I think it's important to keep in mind that my experience with and my thoughts about pepper spray are very rooted in the civilian experience mm -hmm. or the, the, the defender's experience. So I'm not really thinking about using pepper spray to, you know, take somebody down, control them, have to arrest them or anything like that. I'm using it as a getaway tool. Mm -hmm. And in that capacity, it's easy to carry. It's, it's cheap. It's easy to carry. As a woman, especially, I can get away with pepper spray in all sorts of places. I can get away with it in my hand pretty much anywhere. I, can, I have actually been to places where pepper spray was restricted and forgot that it was in my bag. And they went, oh, darling, you're not allowed to have that hair. I'm so sorry. You can check it over there with all the other things that come in, can't come into this facility. You'll get it back at the end of the night. And it was but just very, there, there was nothing yeah. wrong with it. There was no like, oh, you paranoid, you know, you paranoid lady or anything like that. It's like, I'm so sorry, honey. I really understand why you're doing that, though. Yeah, I know of a university police department, and I won't name them, that, uh, it was illegal under state law to carry OC spray on the campus. And that police department just decided in this instance, we're just never going to enforce it. Now that was not in any kind of a official policy statement. It wasn't anything. It was just like a, a, one of those shift briefing agreements is we're not charging anybody that we catch with OC. And we would tell, you know, co-eds and everything, carry it. We don't care what the law says. You're not going to get in trouble. And I think that, you know, the, that perceived harmlessness of it mm -hmm. really, really makes it a powerful tool because you can have it with you, you can have it in hand. And I don't need it to 
drop an attacker to their knees and stop them entirely. I need it to give them that moment of WTF. I, I need it to, as Chuck Haggard would say, take the fight out of them or make them less effective in a fight. Like, yeah, that guy might try to fight through it and still get their hands on me, but they're going to have some problems. You know, they're, they're not going to do very well with it. Um, and in that, that and pepper spray lets me say I'm sorry if I screwed up. You know, it, it hurts. It's really annoying. I mean, I've been sprayed and I always, no matter how well I decontam, that second shower, I always get a second dose of the second shower. It sucks. Yes, it does. But, it's, but unless you're looking at, like, somebody with a rare allergy or something like that, what's the worst that's going to happen? Maybe a cornea scratch? And I really like having that option because it lets you get going faster. Yeah, and I guess one thing would be with perception is even though we are carrying firearms with a defensive mindset, the firearm is still perceived as offensive many times. While you may be able to use OC offensively, it is perceived as a defensive tool. Right. Especially in the, you know, the non-cop world. Right. It's the kind of thing that, you know, I can give out to, and I have given out to all sorts of people who aren't interested. I'm not interested in self-defense. Would you like some pepper spray? You know, that sounds like a really good idea. Yep. You know, when I'm actually involved in efforts right now to get pepper spray distributed throughout the Asian community in New York City, for instance. And historically, there's been a lot of resistance against carrying self-defense weapons. And I think that's where you get, you know, a lot of the sort of novelty self-defense items because they're perceived as not being very dangerous. Uh So, well, let me give you something that isn't terribly dangerous, but is effective. And even to the extent that people worry a lot about backspray and cross-contamination, I'm like, yeah, it could happen. That's true. It's not going to disable you. Yeah. Uh, my negative perception does come from several cross-contamination incidents, mm-hmm. but that was also in a law enforcement capacity in which, you know, when you're the third guy into a fight and you didn't know that the pepper spray had been <laughs> deployed until you're laying on the ground. Oh my God, what was that? that? Yeah. Uh, I distinctly remember four of us fighting a guy and he had us outnumbered and uh, somebody had deployed the OC and I was number three into the fight and three and four arrived at the same time. And we ran into the cloud of OC and we had, we had to fight through it. And this guy was drunk and not feeling any pain. He was like six two, two fifty, And it was one of those where he was on top of a guy. Another officer was on top of him and had one cuff on him and couldn't get the other hand. And we're trying to fight. And, and you, you know, and it's, you finally, somebody else breaks out another set of cuffs and gets them on the other hand. And we join him in the middle and <laughs> it's all this is taking, you know, is taking place. And we finally get the guy in cuffs and I were next to a, uh, like an apartment style building. I look and I see a hose from a from a spigot on the side of the building so i go turn the water hose and we all take turns passing the hose around you know decontaminating and ended up having to get a new watch after that because my watch band got saturated with those yeah and when i think about the civilian use of it first of all like i really i'm hoping i don't have to go to hands-on like the whole point for me is to not have to go hands-on with the guy right the other thing too is 
generally speaking, I'm not, I, I don't have a team on my side. So my odds of spraying a cloud that my teammate, my fellow defender is going to run into is somewhat lower, not entirely lower. I mean, you know, I have a partner, I have friends and things mm -hmm. like that, but it's not quite the same level of potential cross-contam. And that's, you know, I recognize that my, my opinion is shaped by my personal experiences. And that's something when people ask me about OC, it's like, I'm not the guy for you to talk to, <laughs> but I will refer you to these people who will give you uh, an opinion that is not as jaded as mine. Uh, I can see the attractiveness of spraying someone and running away. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about not being a cop is I get to do that. Yeah. So I, I do see the attractiveness of doing that. And I, I don't know the state laws in all 50 states. I got to think that OC is probably going to be, even deploying it and using it, it's probably going to still be misdemeanor, except with maybe the exception of like New York, New Jersey, et cetera, where it might rise into some low level felony of assault. I can't think of any state in which deploying a firearm against another person, you're not getting into felony territory pretty easy if, if it's determined that you weren't legally justified yeah it's certainly you're going to be fighting that battle yeah i think um again that perception of pepper spray being th this defensive this low-level defensive tool really works in your favor there and pepper spray is as far as i know some in some capacity legal in all 50 states there's some restrictions on you know size and concentration et cetera. Et cetera and where you can buy it from. But as far as I know, it's legal everywhere. Uh, if I understand Don't. the two hot brands right now are Palm and Saber Red. Yep. Right. So I, full disclosure, have a financial relationship with Palm because they put together a really cool collaboration package with my name on it. Um, Saber Red, you know, it's also great stuff. I recommend both of them. Uh -huh. How can people go about getting your package with Palm? So if you hit up my website at onherown.life, there is a big kind of ad on the right-hand side. You can click through there, and it'll take you straight to that page. I think if you go directly to the Palm site, you can find it under collaborations as well. And one thing I really love about this package, the reason we put it together is not just because it comes with the purple band, although, you know, that that's part mm -hmm. of it. It's that it, every package comes with two live sprays and an inert trainer spray. And that trainer spray was really, really important to me because as easy as pepper spray is to use, you still need to practice with it. Yeah, I'm going to take the opportunity here to give a couple of plugs. Uh, one would be a mutual friend of ours, John Murphy of FPF Training. John's a previous guest on the show. Uh, his uh, concealed carry advanced skills and tactics class that he travels the country with, um, I think is top three or four. Absolutely. Uh, firearm, you know, personal safety defense training classes on the market, if not top one, uh, because it goes beyond the firearm. It goes into stuff like using OC and, and et cetera. Uh, that's a great training opportunity. Brian Hill and Shelly with the Complete Combatant uh, do training. Uh, our friend Chuck Haggard, uh, Agile Training and Agile Training and, gosh, I'm sorry, Chuck, consulting. I can't remember, and Consulting. Um, Chuck has an OC instructor course, mm -hmm. as well as as well as am I as in uh, uh, user level courses. Can you think of anyone else out there, and of course yourself, um, I, offering I'm, 
I'm liking what Citizens Defense Research is doing. So that's John Johnston, Melody mm -hmm. Lauer, and Chris Seipert are doing some mm -hmm. really interesting work. Um, they have the Armed Parent Guardian, which I think has been excellent. Obviously, the ShivWorks Collective, I guess we can't call them the cartel. Yeah. Uh, the ShivWorks Collective, any of their classes. Um, Cecil Birch's, I think, is probably his immediate action jujitsu is probably the most approachable for people who are really afraid. But I got to say, man, I've taken almost all of them. Mm -hmm. As long as you're game, you can go. You don't have to be ready. Just go. But what about just more straight up OC training? It went, it went straight like up OC and training? Uh, Chuck's really the guy to go to. Yeah. You know, Chuck, Murph has, Murph in the context of, you know, how do I kind of bring this into everything else instead of getting a full day of everything OC? I think that those are your two top choices right now. And of course, you know, anybody that Chuck has trained through his instructor program can run you through quite a bit of it. Um, I also have educational materials where you can kind of get most of the lecture piece in like 10 minutes and a how to practice. Uh, I will admit here on air that I did finally make the mental leap and I did order uh, a bunch of palm when they did a sale. Uh, now, it is still sitting in the box on my desk. I, I'm really struggling with this but because of my past experience. Mm -hmm. It's like I actually sat there, like I put it in my cart and like clicked out of the page two or three times. And then finally, I went back and I, and I ordered it and I had it shipped to my office and it's still sitting on the desk in my office. And <laughs> I, I keep telling myself, you know, you, it, it doesn't do you any good sitting behind a razor wire fence in a secured building that you have to have a key card to get into. That's not doing you any good right here. You need to take it out. Uh, I, so. I mean, I, I have to be, I have to be honest. If my experience of pepper spray was then I had to fight the guy I just coded, probably be less excited about it. Yeah. Uh, the, the only two times I've ever used it or been, or been directly involved with the deployments, uh, one was that did not have a negative outcome for the good guys uh, was uh, an area denial mm -hmm. type of approach. All right, you guys want to mess with us here? Poof, walk through this gas cloud and come over here if you just feel like it. And then another situation with a barricaded suspect, uh, OC was deployed into where he was barricaded. <laughs> well, when you would like, when you would like help, come out, we'll help you. <laughs> <laughs> And, and after a few minutes, he finally was like, all right, you know, I'll come out. Oh, my gosh, please make this stop. And, you know, those instances, and, of course, where I worked, a lot of it involved being used on intoxicated people. Mm -hmm. And so they were slower to feel the effects of it. Um, but we didn't have the option to run off. And I think that's one thing we got to keep coming back to uh, with, with the private citizen. Yeah. Anything, think, go ahead. The, the other thing, too, is, you know, we think a lot about the pain of pepper spray because any of us who've ever been hit by it know how much it hurts. Mm -hmm. But the kind of the cool thing about pepper spray is that's not actually why it works. The pain is right. a side effect. Mm -hmm. the, the involuntary eye closure, the, the lacrimation, the tearing, mm -hmm. um, all of that. And it does open your sinuses and your airways up, but it's going to burn doing it it's like eating. Yeah. that's the hottest it's eating hot chili peppers but it's not the ow 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 part that stops people and that's yeah. kind of the other thing that is worth remembering i think for us and that's why it matters so much to get those fast acting 
varieties. It's not to bring on the pain faster. It's to bring on the faster. Yeah, I, I will agree with that because I could have fought through the pain. Mm-hmm. But it's when you're fighting blind. A lot harder. And you're having a hard time breathing. Uh, that Those are, are uh, much more problematic than the pain. Yeah. Uh, because it's not a debilitating pain. It doesn't stop you from being able to move. It's not like a broken leg or a broken arm. It just hurts. Oh, we we for one we we once um when we were spraying each other in training because we do things like that in Shivworks Philly uh we we sprayed up one of our one of our group and sent him out on the mats to grapple with a purple belt uh-huh. and you know the pain didn't stop him at least not for a while what was really problematic is until he was actually hands on you know, I yeah. mean. Yes, it's by feel. You know, fighting is by feel, but you got to be able to touch them. Yeah, I, th- I think Chuck's best way of describing that is you're about to engage in a mixed martial arts match with somebody, but you get to jab them in the eye right before yeah. you start. I uh, jab and, in a can. Yeah. Uh, anything else from the tool or hard skill side that you would like to discuss? I, I think that for hard skills, a lot of us beat the drum on some form of hands-on fighting skills, ground fighting skills, even stand-up clinch. You know, BJJ is obviously super popular. We're all part of a cult, and we're like CrossFitters. We'll tell you about it. Um, but whether it's BJJ or, you know, wrestling or something else, I think that the importance of being able to hands-on fight effectively cannot be overstated and especially cannot be overstated for for women, for smaller people, for weaker people. Because the bad guys want to go hands-on when they think that they have the physical superiority. So you have to have an answer for that. And tools, unfortunately, are not that answer. At least they're not going to be that answer until you can get to the tool. Right. You used a key phrase earlier, it's not my gun, it's our gun at that point. Yep. Uh, yeah, I was teaching a firearms class for deputies this morning. And... You know, one of the guys is running out of a Safari Land Level 3 duty holster. And I was like, telling him, he's like, look, you know, that holster's giving you more security than what this other deputy over here has. Um, but it's also adding time to your draw. So you're having to make, you're going to have to make a value choice, which is more important to you. The security that additional, um, you know, retention levels give you versus faster access to your firearm. I said, but even though you're you're adding security levels, it's not debilitating to carry in that level three holster. You just have to be clean at getting the gun out. And I said, but, you know, here's the thing. When the whole officer safety movement began in the late 70s, and there was actually statistical research and analysis put into this whole thing, uh, you know, someone determined the stat of X number of officers were killed with their own firearm. Well, so the initial re-jerk reaction was, well, we have to give them more secure holsters which became draw proof holsters basically because we can't let the officers get their guns taken away from them okay that only matters if the guns are being taken out of the holster that still does not solve the problem of the cop was entangled drew his gun or her gun and it got taken away from them after it's out of the holster you could be shooting a level eight holster and that's not going to solve that problem right it's still a timing problem right of when that gun came out and 
you know, I could see the hit, the, the, I can see the challenge. I need a gun that's harder to take out of the holster, but that also means I need more control before I can take that gun out of the holster to ensure that it remains my gun. Mm -hmm. And I think that also requires being able to have retention skills and to be able to shoot from retention Mm -hmm. versus everything is in a full out, you know, locked out, perfect two-footed, you know, shooting stance and uh, you know, one of the things I did with my guys in, in a series of classes I'm running is I made them shoot from a seated position behind a table with a barrel pushed up behind them to block mm-hmm. their elbow in their draw. And what I was trying to replicate was they're in a vehicle or they're in a booth at a restaurant. Yep. Okay, this whole elevator draw stroke may be faster on the timer. Drawing that elevator draw stroke from the position you're in right now, or you can come up and turn and then press out. And I'm willing to give up time two places to the right of the decimal to have a technique that works in this every situation i'm going to face and one thing i've i've learned as i've trained more and more is there's something to be said for learning flexibility in what you do you know i've got that elevator draw when i'm on the competition Mm -hmm. range you know there's a there's stuff that i do on the competition range but as you become more skilled and as you train more and as you train harder i also have you know, that rotating draw. I also have famously now the flashbang draw and everything mm-hmm. else. I also have a way to shoot from retention when I can jack my elbow up and when mm-hmm. I can't. But what it requires is being exposed to all of these different situations so you can work through the problem and figure out what works. I saw that you posted about the flashbang holster, but I have not read through the article yet. Is there anything with that you would like to discuss? The flashbang holster was really interesting to me because there are so many terrible self-defense products on the market, so many gimmicky self-defense products on the market. It's really, really easy to dismiss every single one of them. Once in a while, you find a gem. And the flashbang was one of those. Like, I I spent some time talking to Chuck about it and some Uh others about it. And Chuck's pointed out to me with the flashbang, and you've proven that it works in ECQC and everything else. With the flashbang and Enigma, you could carry a gun and a backup gun forward of the hips on the torso in any girl clothes you can imagine, except maybe a super crop top. How amazing is that? But it was so easy to go, well, you know, it's this girl holster attached to the bra. How good could it be? And let's be honest, there's a lot of girl holsters attached to all sorts of things and girl self-defense products. And it's always girl self-defense products because that's yeah. what everyone sends to me. I know there's problematic ones on the boy side too, but you can't just dismiss them. You know, you have to think through the problem. It might not be a long thought. You might be able to look at it and go, no, no, no that's not going to work. But don't assume that until you've really learned how to work the problem. And we talked before we recorded on, I bristle at the notion of pigeonholing instructors like, oh, she's a female firearms instructor. No, if she's a firearms instructor, you know, is her, are her techniques only good if she's talking to female students or are her techniques valid no matter who she's teaching? Um, and I really didn't want to pose the question, but when you mentioned the flashbang and I thought about, you know what, that is one instance in which I will never have the experience to be able to answer that question. I mean, you could. We can get you. No, I couldn't. No, I could not. (laughs) 
we we could. No. But so here here's something that um, was really formative for me, although it took a couple of years for me to process and fit in. Um, Kathy Jackson, the cornered cat, was one mm-hmm. of my mentors when I started teaching, and she noted to me that being a female firearms instructor or firearms instructor for women is actually harder than just being a firearms instructor. I have to learn all of the stuff that you need to be a good firearms instructor. And then I have to additionally specialize in the specific problems of my population. Uh It's kind of like being a handicapped firearms instructor. You still have to be a really good shooter and a really good instructor. And then you have to learn how to adapt all those things to that world of handicap or that world of whatever else it is. So, you know, what does it take to be a good female firearms instructor? Be a really good firearms instructor. And then, in addition to that, learn all the things that are specific to your population, good and bad. I mean, we have some really cool advantages. So, Well, I think now is the perfect time to segue into the main topic for the night. Which we've already gotten way off of our planned program. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Forty minutes later, <laughs> we're going to segue into our main topic for the night. Was how big of a percentage is traditional self defense, such as firearms, martial arts, or whatever? How big of a percentage of actual safety and security is that for our audio audience? Tiny, teensy <laughs> tiny. It's the fun, cool, flashy part. But ultimately, it is not it is not what we need to stay alive and to stay secure and stay safe in our lives. You, you know, um, I, I once posed the question, I think, to the entire Shivworks Collective. Why is it that we are so concerned about the stranger attack? Statistically, it is the most rare thing that any of us are ever going to see. It's the scary thing. And, you know, it is the worst case scenario. It is, you know, it's the thing that sells classes, frankly. It's the thing that we worry about the most. But it is the thing that statistically is not going to happen. Especially for a lot of us who live this, you know, really privileged life. You know, like I live in an upscale suburb of Philadelphia. You know what I'm not doing is I'm, I'm not getting mugged on my sidewalk uh-huh. like it's just it's just not going to happen i go into the city it might be a little bit different if i go into certain neighborhoods it's going to be a little different but it is a completely unavoidable circumstance in my life and yet that's what we train for because it's sexy and it's because what we worry about what we don't train for and what we don't worry about is domestic violence because it's a lot lot harder to fight off your boyfriend choking you mm-hmm. versus the stranger on the street choking you because there's there's a big mental component to that yeah you know as, as we said earlier your mind's not going to go where it's not been prepared to go and i don't know the exact statistics on uh the percentage of murders that are committed by people who know the person who murdered them versus stranger murder i can look at my own career as an investigator, I only know of one murder that I've been only loosely peripherally involved in that was a complete stranger on stranger murder. In every other situation, there was some sort of knowledge or relationship amongst the parties. 
Yeah, I actually just pulled the uh, UCR statistics for violent crime mm -hmm. and um, of crimes committed by people who are known and taking aside the relationship unknown, which we know yeah. are probably people we know, even yeah. the ones who we know are known is something about 48, 50% over the last 10 years. Yeah. So it statistically, it, it might be an acquaintance. It might be, mm -hmm. you know, your garbage guy has decided to rush you into, into your house and attack you. Right. But it might also be a family member or a partner or somebody that you're dating or coworker coworker or that happens quite a bit or somebody who just works in the same building. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's part of it. You know, we worry so much about the stranger attack, but then I also think about, we worry about the, the physical attack and anybody who works in domestic violence will tell you that physical abuse and sexual abuse are part of the problem, but they don't get into things like emotional abuse and neglect. They don't get into financial abuse. They don't get into all of these other areas. And query, how harmful are those to the victim? How life-ending are those to the victim? Maybe they don't physically die, but are they really safe? Like it, how, how, how do we say that we care about the safety of people when we only teach them how to fight their way out of a physical attack when they don't know where their next meal is coming from? Or people that stay in horrible environments because it's at least it's a safety or secure net. Maybe not a safety. Well, you use safety in the fact that it can meet their physiological needs. But they're it getting fed. Yeah. What if, you know, what if they're staying in an awful, awful marriage, but at least there's a roof over their heads. Somebody's buying them food. Yeah. You know, like, is that safety? And I think that that's, something that we really need to grapple with is like is that enough and then add layer on abuse on top of that yeah, yeah. Uh, someone very close to me was in the process of leaving her husband when she found out she was pregnant and it completely changed and she stayed for years after that yep. because her environment changed and it was like I, I can't walk I can't leave now because this adds another complexity to this whole picture and uh, you mentioned financial abuse. The male half of this had wrecked them financially. And she was having to put steps together to be able to leave. And then the pregnancy occurs. And that added a whole nother level of you know, financial, financial problem. Yep. And it finally it took her longer to recover from that to be able to leave. So you have that. And then that that's only talking about, you know, harm that people do to other people right and then there's just life mm -hmm. you know I, I talk on on her own sometimes about like the flat tire problem you know you have a flat tire what are you going to do do you have a maybe you don't have a partner you can call maybe daddy isn't anywhere nearby well what are you going to do and it is just as dangerous i would argue to be stuck on the side of a busy highway with a flat tire not knowing what to do about it as it is to be walking through that dark alleyway. Because mm -hmm. that's putting you in a vulnerable situation as well. Yep. You're vulnerable for whoever pulls up. Yep. You're vulnerable to whoever pulls up or let's say you're changing that flat. You're vulnerable just to the guy who's not paying attention and sideswipes you. Mm -hmm. uh, you used a term earlier that, that caught my attention. 
you said self-care. How is that different from self-defense? I think about self-care, self-defense is the things that we do to protect ourselves from other people. I think about self-care as the things we do to take to protect ourselves from ourselves. Almost. I think um you and I know a lot of workaholics. You know, I'm at the end of a I don't even want to know how long of a day and I'm just gonna get up at some obscene hour tomorrow morning and do it again. And stopping and taking that moment to say, hey, I'm gonna go and read a fun book for half an hour, or I'm going to spend an hour chatting with my friends and texting with my friends and not worry about that. That's really hard. Or I'm going to spend a little extra money on myself so that I can really enjoy my 18 showers a week because I work out too much. Or I'm going to go get therapy. And these are all things that show that a take care of parts of ourselves that we aren't necessarily taking care of but also are ways that we show ourselves that we matter and that we have value. And I think that if we don't know, like know that we matter and we have value, it's very, very hard to fight for your life. Yeah. You know, the firearms training is job number three for me. Yeah, because job number one is my full-time cop job. And then I teach college classes and then I do the firearms training on top of that. And I love it. I love being a student. I love teaching. And I got into a a stint where I was working sometimes all three jobs seven days a week. Mm -hmm. And I, I hit the burnout point and I got where all three jobs were suffering because of it. So I had to self-impose a limit of firearms training as either I'm teaching or I'm a student. Is one week in a month. And it's hard to hold that limit when I'm getting people like, as you know, the show has actually boosted the profile of the training business. And like, hey, I want to host a class. Can I do what, you know, can you come? And I start looking at the calendar. I'm like, I've got something one week you know, already that, that month. And so it's got to be something really extra special for me to give up and violate that rule. Uh, March TACCON violates the rule. Okay. There's mm-hmm. the TACCON exception there. I'm a bureaucrat. I can do the, you know, the exception to my own rules there. But when you're working more than full-time, you've got a part-time side hustle, and then you were on a range six weekends in a row, and you drive back through the night to get back to the day job so that you don't have to take leave. It paid it paid a price physically on the I paid a massive, massive physical price for that. And you know, mental price for it as well. Yeah, I, I think that you know, self-care has gotten a pretty bad rap. You know, and I think there are people who certainly use it as an excuse to indulge in ways mm-hmm. that are perhaps not super productive or super healthy. But I think it's still an important thing to do, whether it's little Uh bits of self-care, you know, stop and eat lunch, like actually eat lunch, not at your desk, not at your, you know, or like actually cook yourself lunch if you're going to be working from home kind of thing. Like just that, that moment. Uh, One of the examples I like to use is buy the good body wash. 
and it, it resonates a little bit more with the women than with the men, but I mm -hmm. think the men can appreciate this too. It's like, you don't need to buy like the bar of soap. You are worth more than the dollar bar of soap at the grocery store. You are worth the $10 or the $20 bottle of bubbles that smell pretty. You know, it's funny. I'm not a guy that does debt. Mm -hmm. I've got a house payment and that's the only debt that I, that I have. Yep. Um, I, I come from a family. My great grandfather lost everything in the depression and I've been raised all my life is you, you don't finance lifestyle. If you have to borrow money for a house or you have to borrow money for a car, that's acceptable, but it's not acceptable to do anything else with debt. And so I tend to save up money and pay things. I bought cars for cash you know, everything because I saved up the money to do it. And in this whole self-care genre that we're talking about this weekend, I raided half of my new truck fund and bought a new bed. Nice. That's worth it. Because it occurred to me, I am spending $90 a month on chiropractor business right now. Mm -hmm. And it finally dawned on, you know, part of the problem is this bed that yeah. I'm in and I spent way more money than I ever thought that I would spend on a bed. And I'm talking about, I spent twice what I intended to spend when I walked into the store uh, because I bought an adjustable base for the bed instead of a box spring. Uh, because when I was trying out the mattresses, the salesman walks over with a remote control and hits a button and raised the head up about three inches. And that pressure in my lower back disappeared like sold right here <laughs> buy, buy 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 it now buy it now yeah. buy it now so, so how much money did i just spend it was, it was my response and, you know the, you're just striking a chord with me when you talk about self-care is okay so it's going to delay getting that truck and so maybe i'll be, still be in this truck it's 15 years old now maybe, so maybe i'll still be driving it for another five um but okay if it makes a difference in how I react every day, mm -hmm. the salesman asked a very interesting question, but how much caffeine or energy drinks do you drink during the day? All of them. Yeah. I'm like, from the time I get up, there's probably caffeine in my hand until probably two or three in the afternoon. And when I switch to making sure I drink only water and it takes that much for me to function a day. Okay, well, maybe I, I'm able to cut down on that because I sleep at night, actually. Mm -hmm. And your sleep actually has so much to do with your mental health and then your physical health. I started buying um, flavored fizzy water. I drink a lot of water. I drink all the water. I started buying the flavored fizzy water. And it's not super expensive. But every time I'm at the grocery store at Costco, I'm just like, I can't believe I'm buying water. I'm drinking it. I'm enjoying mm -hmm. it. It's because it's not the only water I drink all day long. It's a nice little treat. And, you know, even though, you know, I, I agree with you, I don't like to, you know, debt finance my life. I, I think that prioritizing the things that make you feel special to yourself, that make you care about yourself and help you take care of yourself is important. And you can do it within those confines you know maybe you can't buy the 25 dollar body wash but maybe that five dollar body wash would be a nice little splurge it's going to last you for four months anyway 
or once a week you use it instead of every day or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That, that'll be your special spa day. There you go. Um, I kind of hate to go back to another topic because this last five minutes, it's been different than anything we've done on the, on the show. Uh, but we had a, you know, when, when we were discussing what we were going to talk about tonight, you mentioned two terms, you know, safety and security. So I, I prepped the net with this. What is the difference between safety and security? And I told you, I think it's a hard question. This is this is probably the one of the most challenging questions I've ever thought about. You know, safety on one hand is sort of that I am safe from X. Security, I think, is a deeper thing. You know, we talk about things like financial security, emotional security, and it's it's almost a lifetime thing, right? It's a it's a full state of being versus a transitory state. You know, I can be secure. You know, I, I can have a secure life. You know, I, I can have a home that I know I can pay for, or I can have financial security. I can have a secure job. And then I can flow in and out of moments of safety. You know, I can have a really secure job. And then there's that day I'm, I'm going into a meeting where I know I'm going to rock some boats. I can have a secure home and a secure lifestyle and decide that I'm going to go to, you know, to Philadelphia into some kind of slightly sketch neighborhood to go have dinner with friends. Yeah, maybe I'm a little less safe at that moment, but I have a secure life and I can go back to that. Yeah, I like how you're doing that, breaking it down to more of a philosophical thing than than what I was thinking, Uh, because like. I am more secure in my home than I am in public, mm-hmm. but I feel like I can still be safe in public. Uh, my office is in a secured building with a razor wire fence around it that is constantly monitored by people with guns. All right. Pretty secure. Unless one of my coworkers goes nuts, you're not going to get into my office at work. But I have to leave the I have to get to my office and I have to get home from my office and then I have to go about during the day and occasionally interact with people who do bad things, but I can still maintain a level of safety as I do that, although my physical security, you know, level diminishes. I think what's most helpful about having a vocabulary that splits it is not necessarily the exact definition, but the realization that it's not binary. None of this is binary. Yeah, you know, and going to your point with security, if you're one paycheck away from losing everything you have or one paycheck away from being on the streets, you're not secure. And that goes into your level of safety. Yeah. I think that's, that's really true. Especially the the financial piece I've been thinking about a lot, right. Is, you know, how, how do we, how do we tell somebody to worry about the guy in the alleyway? the guy in the dark parking lot when they're not sure if they're going to have the lights on next week. Yep. You know, what, what, what is the bigger problem here? And, you know, when I think about safety, I, I worry about people freezing to death. You know, it, it's, it's kind of cold up North. Well, this mm-hmm. today's not been so bad, but you know, it, it's been getting pretty cold and I can't save somebody and tell them how to save themselves from an attacker. If they're going to freeze to death. Yeah. 
yeah, those are her concerns. It's one of the things that, you know, has been been working on on her own. I've been thinking so much like I could tell you about like all like the gizmos and the gadgets and the tools mm-hmm. and the techniques and everything. And I can tell you, you know, don't stand here, go there, you know, stop going to these places at these times with these people. And this like very concrete safety advice. Yeah. Right. What does that do for you know, in, in the safety security dichotomy, what does that do for the security of their life? Yep. Well, talk a little bit more about on on her own. On her own, I think I, earlier I called it my doctoral dissertation. It's uh, it's the culmination of many many years of standing on the range as a student, as an instructor, as a competitor, of getting beat up in classes. Um, shit works of going to jujitsu, of being in therapy, of reading anything and everything I could get my hands on, and thinking and talking about what does it mean and what does it take to navigate life on on your own? Because the, the genesis of On Her Own actually came at Attack on one year. And I, I, I don't know how many people know this story, but Attack on one year, I, I sat through a wonderful presentation and there was a slide about, well, you know, why do we do this? And we talk about family, like husbands and wives and children and family and all, you know, the usual, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here and I'm sobbing because I'm like, well, I'm having, I, I'm having some issues with my family right now. I am in the middle of a divorce. You know, I'm living in this like tiny, crappy little apartment most of my friends don't live like in my time zone. Mm-hmm. I don't have any of these people. And whether or not that's true is kind of beside the point. There was that feeling of like, but I can't, like, I, that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this for me. And then I'm thinking about like, well, we don't talk about self-defense for women for just her. And we don't talk a whole lot in the self-defense world about, well, what does it take to navigate life? all by yourself you know like do we like how do you how do you pay rent how do you pay the bills how do you deal with broken plumbing in your apartment how do you how do you deal with car maintenance how how do you you know invest your money like i have all of these other things and then also you know if if i'm a single woman and i want to like go out and start dating how do i stay safe Yeah, I was. It just dawned on me another thing from a family member. She had three children, three sons, and she took out a loan to move her husband out of the house. She actually went to a bank and took out a loan to get him somewhere else to leave, live, to get him out of the house and away from her and the children. Nice. She went into debt to get rid of this guy, and then she raised three boys on her own that's amazing that's incredible you know, you know and i i just it just don't i mean I, we lost her earlier this year and that's one of the things i'm thinking about you know with the whole f- familiar relations and everything it's like the thing i remember about her most is she did that but she still managed to raise those three boys and, and that's that's incredible and i that that's the you kind know. of woman that i think of 
when I work on this is, mm -hmm. you know, yes, the self-defense piece, because, you know, when I was living by myself, I, it was me. I, I had to defend mm -hmm. my home. I, I couldn't rely on anybody else to do it for me. <laughs> and I'm out and about by myself. You know, there, there's nobody who's going to like get my six mm -hmm. or anything yep. like that. So yeah, that's super important. And let's talk about that. And I'm like, well, I want to date. What if I, what if I do want to hook up with somebody? You know, let me tell you, traditional self-defense world does not talk about hookup safety. And I'm sorry, that's a thing that happens. So we should think about how people should be safe doing instead of saying, don't uh -huh. do that. And then I'm like, wait a minute, like th this is only a piece. Like I, I got to figure out like, what do I do about my hot water not working? What do I do when my car breaks down? How, how do I manage my money so uh -huh. I, I can keep doing this? Yeah, because it's not a cheap lifestyle. Ooh. Oh, especially if you decide to become a training junkie. That's definitely yeah. not a cheap lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that is the reason my training business existed or came into existence was to fund my student base. <laughs> Uh, really and truly, uh, this past year was the first year that I actually turned revenue into profit. And it was only a few thousand bucks because I kept putting everything either back into more stuff for the business, either materially, or I used it to go to other instructor level classes or student level classes to pick up a skill that I wanted to add into my teaching thing. And it's only now I started the business in 2014 mm -hmm. where I'm starting to look at, okay, can I, I don't need any other, you know, implements or anything else like that. So now, you know, do I start turning it in and do revenue or profit versus just a way to fund uh, doing other things? And, you know, that is one of the things is what is the average age of people in a traditional firearms class? It's typically up in at least above 30 it's the very old or the very young. Yeah. In the competition world, we get people, um, they've gotten a job and mm -hmm. they don't have kids yet. Yep. And then it's 12 to 18 years later when the kids are old enough to be left on their own or they're out of the house. Uh -huh. And, and a lot gotten, of that's a money problem. And they've gotten successful enough in their financial life that they have some disposable income mm -hmm. uh, to do it. And and then yeah, try to do seems... that on a single income, even for uh, a single person, gets right. pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't come shoot the match this weekend because it's my weekend with the children and I've got, you know, uh, yeah, or something, you know, along those lines. Yep. Um, and we're looking, you know, you got a whole, when are people most vulnerable? I would say that young adult women out on their own, that's probably a more vulnerable time in their life than later when they're more established but they have less money to go do the or they're trying yeah. to make it um uh, christina you know leave this weekend um was in her mid-30s had just moved to new york city for her new job hmm. and i think she'd been living in new york city for about a year as a digital media producer so mid thirties, New York City, got my apartment. Mm -hmm. a good, you know, a, good, a nice apartment. You know, mm -hmm. it, it was locked up, and there were security cameras on every floor and in the entranceway and everything else. And yep, she's dead. Uh, there's an unsolved murder in the neighboring county of a law school student. 
who was living in an apartment and you know, the whole world is, she, she's, she's looking at, you know, I'm about to spring off into the world with a law degree. And, but it's an unsolved murder. Yeah. I and, remember when I was looking for my, uh, for my own apartment after my divorce or, you know, in that whole process and having to think about things like, well, who else can get into the common areas of my apartment? I, I wrote a letter to the apartment that I shared an entryway with to make friends with them before I moved in because mm-hmm. I wanted to get a feel for these people and I wanted them to be friendly with them. Um, and, you know, having to think about things like I want an end unit, not just because of the noise, but so I have a clear firing lane. Uh-huh. Uh, one thing I, I want to, it's, it's kind of a practical thing to talk about with, with, with people here is don't hesitate to call 911. People tend to overthink that. And like the the child of a friend of mine went off to college in the town where I was working at the time. And, you know, so they made a point of her having my cell phone number and, and the like. And, you know, if you need something, call Lee. He'll he'll come help you and everything. And, and I've talked with her and everything. Yeah, if you need something, call me. Don't worry about the time, whatever. And you know, one night she calls me at two in the morning because someone's at her door trying to get into the apartment. Okay, if I left, like if I was sitting there dressed, ready to run out the door, I'm a 25 minute drive to get there. I'm like, hang up the phone with me and call 911. But I don't want to bother them. Yeah, get the people who were prepared to respond to you in route. And it's funny how people they think they don't want to be a bother and that's what you're paying people for and you tend to overthink it because trust me the people who aren't paying for the service love to use it It, i've lived in a jurisdiction um that used 911 for all emergency services whether or not it was an emergency call Mm -hmm. i once had to call the police to report something and it was non-emergency and i went digging hard to find their non-emergency number because i'm like this does not need to be 911 like we all agree it doesn't need mm-hmm. to be 911 this is non-emergent i just need to like report this thing so i find the number i get through to somebody and they're like call 911 i'm like are, are you sure this isn't they're like all calls in this jurisdiction route through 911 even if it's non-emergency and i thought it was brilliant I mean, it must be crazy for the dispatch, dispatchers, yeah. but from a, a citizen standpoint, it was brilliant because I need to talk to the police officer. I will call 911. It doesn't, I don't have to decide if it's emergent or not. They're going to decide how fast they need to respond. Yeah, it just, it just amazes me that somebody will look out their window and see something getting toted out of their neighbor's house. That's a Southern term for somebody's leaving for their house. Getting <laughs> toted out of, the, out of their house. And they'll, like, they'll call like their brother or they'll call somebody else to get permission or ask, should I be calling 911 about this? That's when you call 911. We are giving you permission. Right. Right here. Right now. Uh, now. Things that you don't call 911 about. Your cable TV not working. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, Your power being, you call your power company, unless 
you were on a ventilator and your generator's not working and your battery supply's running out, then you can call 911. But if your power's out, that's when you call the people who provide your power. Yeah. Years of running a 911 center affected me. And uh, I, I had a list of things that when you should call, you know, things that are on fire that shouldn't be on fire. That's when you call 911. Um, <laughs> But, you know, things, people getting impaled with things they don't want to be impaled with. That's when you call 911. And, but there's, I have my whole list of things that you don't call for. That begs a question. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and it's just, I don't get that why people will call 911 for nonsense, but then they won't call when it's for real. It's interesting that you say that, though, because I think about the people who, um, aren't willing to use self-defense tools and techniques when it's for real too. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I will come back with a perfect segue back to what we were talking about. The theme of the night was a married woman with children, but had a husband that had a job that required him to travel. And we got hit with a massive cold snap with cold for Georgia. And she had a pipe burst. And she called 911. She says, I am sorry that I'm calling you about this, but my husband is not home. And I don't know how, where the water cut off, the emergency cut off for the water is in my house. And we're like, ma'am, this is an appropriate use of 911. <laughs> People went over, like, you got cops and firefighters out walking around the house trying to find the cutoff valve and turn it off. Okay, but that's something that, okay, maybe everybody in the house should know about. Where's the emergency water cut off? That's part um, of, you know, talking about being financially secure, not having all of your valuables ruined because a pipe burst or causing thousands of dollars of damage that you're going to have to pay for. And that's yeah. stretching your financial over something as simple as how do I cut the water off in the house? I, I don't know about um, how many houses down here you have generators, but if you don't have a, 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 a cutover switch for your generator, you got got to go like lug it out and mm-hmm. you know start it up and I went through a period in my life where my now ex-husband knew how to run the generator he was of course on his once yearly business trip halfway across the country when we had a storm blow through and we're out of power like five days and of course it went early in his trip I had to learn how to set up the generator start it up keep it fed and it's it's really colored my my idea of you know when when is somebody on the own? Mm-hmm. I'm like, at some point your partner is going to travel. At some point your kids are going to move out. At some point there's going to be that moment, and you're going to be like, either all the food in all the freezers is going to go bad, or I'm going to learn how to start this generator. Yep. I grew up way out in the country and the people that had generators, they were at the barn. They weren't at the house. So you could still run the dairy and and make a living. Um, We kept a kerosene heater in the barn. And if the power went out of the house, we also lost water because the well pump was electric. Mm -hmm. And so we would have to bring the kerosene heater up to the house and we would cook on top of the kerosene heater. Um, Or otherwise, my grandmother lived next door and she had a gas stove as well as an electric stove in her house because gas stove was what you make proper biscuits and apple pies in and but we had springs that my grandfather had walled in with mason masonry pipes 
And one of my jobs growing up when I was still little enough to do it was daddy threw me over the side into the spring with a scrub brush and a bottle of Clorox. And I cleaned all the algae and stuff off the walls of the spring so that if we had a bad storm in the winter that knocked out the power, which meant we didn't have water, the water in the spring was drinkable. And we went down with a bucket and we would dip out and I would carry water from the springs back to the house and fill up bathtubs and fill up everything else. And, wow. you know, that's part of life. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that we all have to learn how to do when it's, you know, part of our lives. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, t- turning around on the guys is your wife goes on vacation, you know, goes out on a girls weekend. Do you know how to cook dinner for yourself, let alone the kids? Mm-hmm. You know, like, can you do something more than throw together a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Don't can be knocking the PBJ throw- now. I mean, can can you even do that? Because there are some people who just get the wrong ratio. <laughs> I, I, I will not eat a cold sandwich. I, I went to a small private school for most of my school time coming up that did not have a lunchroom. And I got sent to school every day with a brown bag lunch. And I have eaten my last cold sandwich if i eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich the bread is toasted and i eat it while it's still hot well that sounds really good actually. i just yeah and i, I i'm not gonna do it it's not gonna gonna have if i have a ham sandwich i grill the ham in in a skillet uh for and it goes on toasted bread i'm stuck grilled happen. ham and cheese is uh, yeah. um before we get out of here tonight and we've been going for for quite some time i want to talk about your book Right, and for our audio so audience. Prepared. I was okay. so prepared. So about four or five years ago, I wrote the Dry Fire Primer. And it's a short little tome on how to dry fire. So it's it's intended to bridge that gap between I know what dry fire is. And I you know, can follow all the drills in Ben Seger's book or Steve Anderson's book or, or Mike Seeklander's books. And, you know, they have a whole list of drills. But I don't know how to do those drills. I don't know how to get the most out of those drills and it's also intended for people like well i've been dry firing for a while but i'm not getting anything out of it what am i missing so this is just like a short little introduction to a lot of concepts like how to set up for dry fire how to make it part of your life how to be safe with it and how to use it to improve and it is available in ebook form from amazon correct ebook and paper from Amazon. Um, Gun Goddess is still selling signed paper copies of it. And I believe there are still paper copies of it available from concealedcarry.com. All right. I think it, Big Text Outdoors too. All right. Is there anything that I have failed to ask you about that you would like to talk about? I don't think so. My life these days is really on her own in BJJ, so... And a cat, apparently. And and a cat. Uh, two cats, actually. And they're finally settled down a little bit. I might get to sleep tonight. There you go. Um, how can people get in touch with you? Best way to find me is through On Her Own. The website is onherown.life. On Her Own is also on Facebook and Instagram. I am not young enough to understand TikTok. Um. I drew the line. I'm not going beyond Facebook. I do occasionally put something on Instagram, but it's linked and goes right back to Facebook. And that's just, <laughs> I, I'm not doing TikTok. I'm not, somebody mentioned something else the other day. I'm like, no. 
I finally figured I figured out the line. I got old. I, I don't do Twitter and I don't do uh, TikTok. Right. But um, I can be found on Facebook and Instagram. I am also known as the beauty behind the blast. So blasting beauty is still out there. I can still be reached through that. I will be at TACON next month. Um, not sure. If, I, I should probably bring copies of my book. So that might be another way for you to get copies. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. Put up a purple flag, light the purple signs, and I'll probably be there. All right. Well, folks, uh, once again, I'd like to uh, thank you for joining us and spending your time with us. Uh, you know, we had the two weeks off when I had the the uh, the plague there and wasn't able to get episodes put together. But the episode last week with Andy Stanford is doing really well in the numbers. So I appreciate uh being welcomed back to the to the audience and uh that you that you're still out there so thank you for that and uh you know this episode's been a little different than everything we put together but that was one of the reasons for doing it and i I had fun with it thank you annette for coming on thank you so much for asking me i really enjoyed this all right and uh again as i understand everyone your time is your most valuable asset so uh thank you for your time